morning, amen. Uh, what a great reminder of why we're here this morning, right? To praise the King of Kings. And it's great to see everyone here. Welcome to Creekside Church. Um, we're going to obviously sing about our Savior today. And I wanted to read a couple of verses from Ephesians. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then in Romans it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to sing about that grace. you. You are Lord, and nothing can change that. This world may deny you. They may try to defame you. But in the end, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Nothing that anyone says can change the truth of that, and we praise you for that assurance that we have. Thank you for being our Lord and for desiring that all come to repentance that you'll bless the, the words of your servant today and open our hearts to listen in your name. Amen. Thank you, praise team, and just appreciate the opportunity to be uh, led into the presence of the Lord through uh, great singing and challenges from the Word of God. Uh, I want to say that there are a couple things just to make you aware of. First of all, um, there is a team from our church that's headed to Haiti, a uh, week from today at 1150, uh, first Sunday of every month, we're asking whoever would, is interested and whoever would want to participate in some time of prayer for them, just to uh, meet over in the fellowship hall after the, after the service. So that's a great thing. Continue to pray for them as they prepare. That part of Haiti that our team is headed to is not, has not experienced the, the damage from the earthquake that other, uh, other places in Haiti have. Also, the little free food pantry, which some of you may not know, but when you drive into the church, you see a little box on a stick out in the parking lot, okay? It's a little like a tree house, and uh, that's a place that uh, we uh, work with, the, the, what used to be the reserve, Arborddale next door, to provide uh, free food for non-perishable items for anybody who wants them, so they can come in and just take whatever they want. So we're collecting that, so please take note of that and put your stuff out here in the entryway as you come in. Also, I just want to make you aware that a week from Wednesday, Awana will start, so we're looking for volunteers. There's the table, Mary and Paul have a table set up in the entryway, so if you're interested in helping out, we sure could use some, some help for volunteers. I'm going uh, to open in prayer. And I'm going to pray for a few other things uh, because I think we have some things going on in the world and in our country that uh, warrant some time. So I'm going to just ask you to join with me as we, as we look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we are a needy people and we come to you. And my heart, Father, has gone out and goes out uh, to the, the lives of those who have uh, lost loved ones in the explosion in Kabul. I pray for our servicemen and women who are faithfully executing their duties in danger every moment of every day. We pray for the families who've lost loved ones that you would comfort them, that you would encourage them, that you'd strengthen them. We pray that you would work to protect the rest of our servicemen and women who are there, the rest of those Americans who are there, others who are seeking to flee because they've been helpful and are contrary to the work of the, of the Taliban. I pray that you would blind the eyes of the enemies who seek to do harm to Christians and to other uh, Afghanis and Americans and other expatriates that are there from other countries. We pray that you would continue to encourage and strengthen and steal those who are still seeking to get out, that you'd give them hope and encouragement. And I pray 
that our government, the federal government of the United States, the people in positions of power would do everything within their power and unleash the uh, resources of our military to make this extraction happen. And I pray that you would give protection and grace to those in, involved. God, we just can't even imagine what it would be like, but I pray for your grace and especially now for those who've lost loved ones. Uh, God, I just can't help but think how, how tragic it is, and I know that they're hurting, and we pray that you would comfort them. I pray for our, our friends in Haiti, uh, people who have lost lives, who've lost loved ones, who've lost their possessions, their homes have collapsed, they've endured uh, an, an, a tropical storm standing out in the rain because they're afraid to go into the buildings that would collapse upon them if there was another tremor or earthquake. We pray for those who are bringing relief and help to them, that you'd give them physical stamina and strength, that those who've been devastated would find courage and hope in you. I pray for my brother uh, Rivenson and his, his wife, Marcia, as they minister in a church where virtually everyone in the church has been impacted by the, uh, the earthquake, we pray for your comfort and your encouragement and your strength in, in their time of need. And Father, I pray now also for those who are in our country in the, the southern parts of the United States who are bracing to experience a, a tropical storm, a hurricane, give them grace and strength, we pray. And now as we open your word, Father, we pray that you would Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that you have for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was asked by a member of my family what kind of cake I wanted for my birthday, I didn't hesitate in saying I wanted a homemade carrot cake with cream cheese frosting. It was delicious. As we, as a church family, uh, get ready to start into another ministry season, I think it would be important for us to stop and ask the Lord, not what kind of cake He wants, but what He wants from us. What He wants from us as a church family. What He wants from us is, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to that end, we're going to spend today talking about uh, some of those things that I think the Lord would want from us in deviating from our series in Matthew, but actually we're going to be in Matthew, so it's not, uh, at least part of the time, so it's not completely, completely divergent from it. And it, it seems to me that, that God's answer to the question, what do you want from us, is not going to be a rocket science like my answer to the question, what kind of cake I want, and people in my family know that that's probably the answer that I'm going to give. And so the answer that God gives to us is something that each of us if we're mindful of, was reminded of when we walked into the worship center this morning. But my guess is that most of us didn't even see it. There's a sign above the entryway to the worship center that says, leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what the mission is of our church. That's what we've committed ourselves to as a church body. That's what we've said that we're about. But unfortunately, uh, there is this thing called pan there's been this thing called a pandemic. And pandemic that pandemics that have promoted isolation, right? There are physical ailments that demand our attention. There are personal losses that cause distractions and discouragement. And then there are these things called problems. We all have them, personal problems, problems in the world that lead us into some sort of frenzy about what we're going to do about taking care of those problems. And all of these things serve to be distractions that I think the enemy can use as tools to divert our attention away from our mission. We just get caught up in life. And we forget to think about the fact that God has placed us here for a reason and He has a purpose for us and He wants us to be a part of it. When so much of the world that we live in encourages isolation and insulation, we get distracted and pulled away from our mission, which is first and foremost to, to, to encourage people, to inform them about a personal relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's to invite people to know and invite people to grow into a relationship with God through faith in His Son. We're not supposed to be here to isolate. We're supposed to be to reach out. We're not supposed to remain 
in, we're supposed to reach out to, uh, to other people. We're not living for ourselves, we're living for others. That's what God's called us to. And so leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ requires reaching out with Christ's love to the lost and to the hurting people. And so this morning I want to take us to a passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, and then we'll go into a passage in Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to look at 11 through 14, where I think, again, this is not the final word on it by any means, but here we have a couple of ingredients in a recipe for reaching out that I just think we need to be reminded of. I needed to be reminded of it, and I need to be reminded of it quite often. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 35 through 38, where we're going to first look at what it means to have compassion. A compassionate concern for the lost is the first ingredient in reaching out that we're going to talk about this morning. So please don't say, well, he said there's only two ingredients in reaching out to people, and that's it. No, this is not the Bible's only word or final word, but these are some of what the Bible has to say. Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 35. And Jesus was going about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness and seeing the multitudes he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd then he said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few therefore beseech the lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest our compassion for the lost in Matthew chapter 9, in these verses, verses 35 to 38, we learn that Jesus' primary concern over people's depravity is coupled with his interest in their physical and their emotional afflictions and difficulty. And it provides a compelling, he does, a compelling example. Not just for us to appreciate. Oh, I really appreciate the fact that Jesus you know, looked on the masses with compassion. No, but for us to emulate. It's not just to appreciate, but to emulate, to follow in his footsteps. And there are three manifestations in the text that I see in the text uh, of compassion for the lost based on his example. And the first manifestation is our commitment to proclaim the gospel. In verse 35, two facts about his proclamation, two facts about the importance of the gospel lead me to believe that it is part of being compassionate to share it. Okay? It's demonstrating this compassion. First, the scope of it. He says he went around to all the cities and villages. Every four years in Iowa, we see hopeful, presidential hopefuls running from pillar to post all over Iowa, you know, Big cities and small towns trying to gain people's acceptance. Well, we see Jesus running from pillar to post. He's running from cities to villages because his heart of compassion for the lost is not particularly focused on only those souls who live in large metropolitan areas. He's concerned about all souls, even the souls of those who live in the small towns and the villages. And so I think it's it's helpful for us to look at ourselves and say, you know, are we as a people, and we come from all different areas, but are, are we interested? Do we really care about the, the people, the souls in Carlisle and Jewel and Woodward or Granger? As much as we care about the, the souls of those who are in Clive and Johnston and Waukee and Urbandale, all of them matter. Uh, to the Lord, and, and that, that's his, the scope of his concern is all of them. And then we see his strategy, and there are three ways that Jesus communicates the gospel as a demonstration of his compassion, and the text lays them out for us, and Jesus was going about in all the cities and villages, first of all, teaching. Well, what's that? Well, it's pretty much, you take the Word of God, you read the Word of God, and you tell people what the Word of God says. And it's 
what our brother Norb's going to do down in Haiti. He's going to take John 4 and he's going to just say, okay, we're going to read the Word and we're going to look at what the Word says. I'm going to tell you what the Word says and we're going to try to do what the Word says. Okay? So it's not just information, but it's a hope for, for transformation. And this is something that should be done, you know, in our homes and in the church, in our community, in our country, in the world. We're teaching. We're trying to teach the truth of the Word of God. Jesus did it in Matthew chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 2. We, we see He opened His mouth and He began to teach them, saying, and then we have the whole of the Beatitudes. It's Jesus' model. That's what He did. He taught people the Word of God. And we're supposed to call... See, without the truth, if we don't have the truth of God's Word, what do we leave? We, we have condemnation of the lost. There's no salvation of the lost. And there's no transformation of those who come to faith in Christ apart from the Scripture. John, uh, we, we heard it this morning in the first service in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. No Word, only condemnation. No Word, no salvation. No Word, no transformation. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, how, what are we supposed to renew our mind with? The Word of God, so that we're transformed and changed. The moral erosion, and you know, we look around the world and we despair. We look around our country and we despair at the moral degeneracy. But the, the moral erosion in our culture is due to, I, say, I think, ignorance of and indifference towards God's Word. I read the results of a recent study that was just kind of baffling to me. And here's what it said. 60% of born-again Christians, people who claim to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, between the ages of 18 and 39, say that Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. They say that Muhammad and Buddha also are valid pathways to salvation. 60%! of those who profess faith in Christ between the ages of 18 and 39 have declared this. And I have one verse for them. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. Don't take it up with me, take it up with Jesus. He said there's only one way. This is a problem in the church of Jesus Christ. We have to know the truth in order to teach the truth. And my concern for us is, are we exposing ourselves to the truth? Fine, you're here on Sunday morning, but when you leave here on Sunday morning, and I've said this before and you've heard the analogy before, you don't eat one meal a week. You know, we need to be in the Word. We need to be spending time in the Scriptures regularly. And that's my challenge. Are, are we doing that, family? Are we doing it? Secondly, Jesus wasn't just teaching. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And to proclaim is an impassioned plea. Now, some of you have seen commercials on TV about getting a reverse mortgage. Some of you have seen commercials on the Internet or whatever about uh, some gaming system that you just need to have. It's going to change your life if you get this gaming system. Well, an impassioned plea that will change your life is what Jesus was talking about. He proclaimed the good news. The gospel of the kingdom. The good news that there is re redemption is possible. Through faith in the Son, the Messiah, so that we could be in relationship with Him now, ruling in our lives, and be free from the condemnation that sin brings into our life because of our, because of our wickedness, and we can receive forgiveness. We've got to recognize, the, the good news is we recognize we're messed up. And if you don't think you're messed up, talk to somebody who knows you a little bit, and they will declare it. You see, it's one of the things about getting into relationships, especially, uh, you know, like I, 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 when I'm married, it's like, yikes, uh, because I, I see my own wickedness. And I don't like to see it, but, you know, I got somebody there that's, you know, reflecting back to me that, yeah, you know, you're not all as good as, as you think you might be. 
we, are, we must recognize that we're, we're not up to the standard that God says. And then, not only do we, we have to recognize that, but we have to, to realize that, wow, uh, we deserve punishment because of it. The Bible says the wage of sin is death. There's destruction awaiting. You know, my heart, as I said, goes out to those people in Afghanistan. Can you imagine if you have been helping the United States, United Kingdom in this process of whatever is going on in Afghanistan, and now the Taliban has your name? Because our leaders thought in the divine providence that they was wise to give them the names of all the people because then the Taliban are going to go and they're going to usher them to the C-130 transports and usher them out. Not going to happen. They face destruction. But every person on planet earth who is separated from God faces an even worse demise. Destruction. Let's realize that. And then we must have some sense of turning, of repentance, of turning away from my wickedness and my separation from God and want to turn to Him and receive Christ as my Savior. That's the proclamation. What, one of the very first things Jesus said, He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It means to turn from your sin and to trust me. This is the message of salvation that Jesus proclaimed. We must personally accept it. You know, you can hear it in church all your life, but you must personally own it. You must personally come to the place of realizing that I am desperate for God's forgiveness. Apart from it, I will spend an eternity apart from Him. The message is what we proclaim to our family. It's the message we proclaim to our church family. It's the message we proclaim to our community, to our country, and to the world. But we must know the message. And it is the most compassionate thing to do. You know, we were, something came up this morning in the first service to talk about, you know, hate speech. We get, we're big into that nowadays, you know. Well, that's hate speech. You know what? The Bible is love speech. You may not like what it says. I don't like what it says because it points out my sin. But it is not hate speech. It is love speech. Because apart from it, we are destined for destruction. The most loving thing we can do is is not piously but humbly acknowledge that we're messed up and that only by the grace of God have we been saved and that we want other people to be saved too. That's love speech. And then he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And Jesus' miraculous activity reveals his compassion. Why was he healing people? Well, part of it was because he cared that they were hurting. He cared about their plight. But more importantly, his his ministry of healing validates his identity as the Son of God. And as he validated his identity, it confirmed him as the king and it gave authority to his message. Oh, they really believed that he was the Son of God because he did what only the Son of God could do and it gives confidence for you and me to share the same message. He is God. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he, we just sang it. Do we believe it? If we believe it, then we'll share it. Our compassion communicates the gospel. And I just want to challenge you. I want to challenge myself. Where are we doing that? We sing a song about we're going to, you know, if you're, if you're free, those people who are free, they're going to share it loudly, right? They're going to share it freely. I'm just not so sure we're convinced that we're free. I'm not so sure we're just really juiced up about the fact that we've been liberated from God's condemnation. Otherwise, we wouldn't be so silent. But what God has done for us So as a church, as individuals, my call is I need to be reminded that, hey, I'm here to share the message of the gospel. That's an act of compassion. And then we see our compassion for people. Verse 36, and seeing the multitude, he felt compassion. Two things I want us to point out and consider here. First of all, the reality of compassion. And everywhere he went, there was a mob, right? You think about that. He said, Jesus, I mean, by this point in his ministry, every time there was a mob, okay? 
And uh, they, they, they were all around him. They were curious, some of them. They were critical, some of them. And some of them were just clamoring for a favor. <laughs> Let's just use Jesus. Sounds a lot like some of our prayers. Jesus is very useful as long as he does what I want him to do. And so that's where they were. But how did Jesus respond to the people who were curious and critical and clamoring for a favor? The multitudes were around him. I don't know, we, some of you want, we went to, one of the things we did on uh, last week, we went to the fair, okay, the state fair. A lot of people at the state fair, you know, every day, a lot of people, it's, it's a multitude, surrounded by a multitude. Can you imagine that you're Jesus and you're surrounded by that, that kind of a crowd every day? It's kind of exhausting uh, to, be, to be surrounded. And yet he wasn't perturbed. He pitied them. Came into Jerusalem and he saw the multitudes and they were like sheep without a shepherd. It said that he had compassion on them. And I've, I've talked about this word before. It's a visceral response of pity, of sympathy, of empathy towards their situation, towards their circumstance. But it's an essential character of God. Psalm 103, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's who he is. We see it in Jesus' life here in, in, in chapter 14. He had compassion for, for the, the people. And it's supposed to be part of who we are as God's children. Colossians 3.12, put on a heart of... Now, you, those of you who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion of empathy and, 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 and concern for, for other people. When I saw pictures of uh, the devastation from the earthquake in Haiti from friends of ours that showed us the pictures, places that I've been, people that I, you know, I don't know if I know these people, but the, the houses are just smashed on top of each other. You know, the second story just falls down and it's just like a pancake. The people went through the, the storm that went after the earthquake. They stood out and cowered in the rain, the cold rain, because they were afraid to go into their homes to get shelter for fear that it would fall on them. Your heart goes out to these people. They had no water. It's... it's a, baffling and so Jesus has compassion that we see the reason for his compassion they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd now that phraseology is is important because when you and I read it we think yeah he felt sorry for them you know because they were probably hurting or because they were sick or they're ailing yeah that's true that, that don't deny that it takes into account their physical affliction but it speaks primarily of their spiritual condition You see, they had been steeped in religious tradition and ritual without a relationship with God. They had shepherds like the shepherds of Ezekiel 34. The text here says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to these shepherds that this is what the Lord God says, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should the shepherds not lead the feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. They were derelict in the responsibility to provide spiritual nurture and encouragement to the people of Israel, just like the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. And Jesus knew that they were steeped in religion without a relationship. They were wandering in a spiritual wasteland. And folks, that's where the masses that we are around each day are today. They are wandering in a spiritual wasteland. I, mean, I was just talking to somebody after the first service. They went to a wedding, and the wedding, they had not one mention of God, not one prayer, not one thing, just a big party. Well, that's life. That's the world. You go to work each day, and you're surrounded by people who they don't even think about God unless they're going to use his name in vain. You go to class each day, surrounded by multitudes of people who are wandering in a spiritual wasteland apart from Christ. 
That's what Jesus had. The lost are helpless. The people that we are talking about are helpless and they're hopeless to combat the fear of the pandemic. They don't know what to do. They're, they're paralyzed by their fear. They have no hope of the disaster that's going on in Afghanistan. They have no clue as to what, what, what hope could they have in the midst of that craziness or in an earthquake or a hurricane or a terminal illness. They don't know what to do. These are the ones Jesus had compassion upon, compassion for. And so I had to ask myself, do I have the eyes of Jesus? Do I see them as Jesus does? Do I react to the defiant and the displaced and the deviant people and the disillusioned people in the world the same way Jesus did? Sometimes I get really jaded and I just get mad. Instead of empathizing and having sympathy for them, they, they're, they're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. I ran across this quote and I'm going to read it for you. Let me look on the crowd as my Savior did till my eyes with tears grow dim. Let me view with pity the wandering sheep and love them for the love of him. Do I see the people around me and view them with contempt or with compassion because they're sheep without a shepherd? And by God's grace, he has made his way known to me and now I'm in the fold and I want them to be in the fold as well. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we're told that the Lord is, is, is long-suffering and patient, not willing that any should suffer, but that all might come to repentance. Do we want people to come to repentance? We need to communicate the gospel. We need to have compassion for people. And we need to have the compulsion to pray that God would raise up workers to reach these people that we can't reach. And this compulsion is fueled by a couple of facts. If you look at verses 37 and 38, uh, first of all, the condition of the harvest, uh, where the, he talks about the condition of the harvest here. He says, the, the har uh, Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. Uh, think about that. You and I know it intellectually, but there's a lot of lost people who need to know Jesus. And the text, the harvest, is the ones that he's going to bring to himself. That means there's a lot of people out there who are, are being drawn by the Spirit of God that God has predestined to be in his family. The harvest is plentiful. They're, they're there, ready to, to respond to the gospel. John 4.35 puts it this way, that the fields are white for harvest. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, raise your eyes and observe the fields that they are white for harvest. I don't know about you, but I don't really live that way. Seeing all these people, I was walking through the state fair and I wasn't conscious of the fact that there are many people here who are ready to accept Christ. But Jesus said it then. The fields are white. Now, I don't think they've gotten any less white, uh, ready, ready for the harvest. But there's a shortage of workers as well, okay? So that, the condition is there's plentiful harvest, but there's a shortage of workers. So who's going to warn these people to avoid condemnation? Who's going to uh, announce to these people that there is salvation in Christ? Who's going to announce to them that they can have uh, an impact in their world that transcends themselves? I remember when I came to faith in Christ, one of the biggest things for me was, you know, what's the point of life? You know, you, you live, you get old, you get married, you have kids, then you die. You know, collect a few things along the way. Seems kind of pointless. You know, does the one with the most toys at the end win? As the saying goes, no. But then somebody explained to me that there was a purpose that was eternal that transcended myself. That there's a relationship with God that gave me a purpose to live that would, I, could, I could outlive myself. 
by investing in the things of eternity. And it made like, whoa, that, that, that matters to me. But who's going to tell the people? Who are the harvest workers that are going to tell the lost around us? My neighbors, my family members, our family members, our neighbors, our, our, our co-workers about the, the gospel. Who's going to do that? Well, we are. We're supposed to. And we're supposed to pray that God would raise up other people to do it. In, in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, if you, the, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how they will hear unless someone is sent or a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? And then he quotes Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace, proclaiming news of happiness. Our God reigns. We're the ones. And so we should pray. We should pray for workers to go into the harvest, to invite people to repent and believe and receive Christ. But as MacArthur says, it's a dangerous prayer. And I quote John MacArthur, but when we earnestly pray for the Lord to send someone to those unsaved people, we cannot help becoming open to being that someone ourselves. Yeah, God, send people to reach my neighbor for Jesus. <laughs> you know, I got this family member, Lord, and they don't know Christ. Would you raise up somebody to, to share with them and then, oh, all of a sudden, the next family reunion, guess who I'm sitting by? It's a dangerous prayer. We should... Ask God what the first ingredient that we have is our compassion for the lost. And the second one is our courageous commitment to do good works. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Titus uh, chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Right after Tim, 2 Timothy is Titus. Okay. If I can get there. Titus chapter 2. And in Titus chapter 2, Paul challenges uh, Titus to communicate to the believers throughout Crete, he's called to communicate to them, that their conduct is to match their confession, that their practice is to be consistent with their profession. Uh, they'd kind of gotten off track, and so uh, they had missed it. And Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, that the incarnation, Jesus coming to earth, is really the motivation for believers to expect that their behavior matched their belief. I'll read it for you. We're going to read verses 11 through 14, okay? Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. Now notice the four there. It's indicating a reason. The reason and up above is your, your conduct should match your confession. And the reason for that is that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for that glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us, redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so we see that in 2.11, we see the reach of our salvation. Paul talks about this, the incarnation, and gives us reasons why believers' behavior is expected to match their belief. In, in, in verse 11, we see the reach of our salvation. God's grace is for all men, right? The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation, the offer of salvation to all men. And who are the all men? Well, you looked up in the previous verses, you see the old men, the young men, the old women, the old young, I mean, it's everybody, okay? People. And it's to provide salvation for all of them. And there are two aspects of our salvation that's provided for by means of his death in our place that inspire us to be doing good things. That's verse 14. Okay, in verse 14, we see, first of all, it's, it's, there, there's the reality of our salvation. It says in verse 14, who gave him, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. 
Well, he gave himself for us, bringing salvation to all men. Okay? He brought salvation. How did he do that? By the grace of God, he brings salvation. He gave himself for us. Okay? And for us means in our place. And we all know that, right? We know that in our place. He died in our place. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, Christ uh, died for sin. No, he says, He himself gave, uh, gave himself in his own body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. He died for us. We deserve punishment. He took it on our, on, on our behalf. That's what it means to die in our place. Um, let me exp- ex- illustrate it. Have you ever driven another person's car? Okay, so just imagine you're driving another person's car and you're on uh, 235 and you're headed into downtown Des Moines. And you get by the sign that says the speed limit is 55 miles an hour, photo enforced. But you ignore it and you're going 75. You're driving somebody else's car. Camera takes a picture. Guess who the ticket is sent to? The owner of the car. Now, if the ticket is sent to the owner of the car and you've been driving and they pay the ticket, they paid it in your place. You deserve to pay the ticket because you were the one speeding, but they paid it in your place. Jesus died in our place on the cross so that if we put our faith or our trust in what he did for us, then we are forgiven. That's the, that's the reality of our salvation. But the reasons for our salvation, why have we been redeemed for the Lord, are in the last part of verse 14. It says in verse 14 that he gave himself up for us that he might, in order that he might redeem us. Okay? The reason for our salvation is to redeem us from every lawless deed. The that in the text gives the purpose or the reason. And the reason is to redeem us from every lawless deed. Um, what does it mean to redeem? At the state fair, I have started a little bit of a tradition for myself. Uh, I go to the, the, the Bowder ice cream booth and I buy a Bowder bar. Okay? Now, a Bowder bar is Oreo cookies crushed with a two-inch layer of peppermint ice cream, and then a thin layer of hot fudge, and then more Oreos crushed, frozen, cut up, and consumed. (laughs) But it's not consumed until I paid to redeem it. You see, the Bowder ice cream shop owns the Bowder bar until I pay the price to redeem it into my own possession. And so when Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross, he paid the price to redeem us from sin and from the the penalty and the power of sin. And every human being is lawless by nature. Uh, Your sins, Isaiah says in 59.2, Isaiah 59, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Your your sins have made a separation. We deserve his wrath as children of wrath, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. But the wage of sin is, is that punishment. But Christ shed his blood as the payment to free us, redeem us out of the Bowder booth into the kingdom of God, okay? To save us from our sins. And the text of Ephesians 1 says, And in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. That's what God has done for us through the death of Jesus. And freedom from sin's power, freedom from sin's penalty, and in glory, freedom from sin's presence. For all who have received Christ. But we have to put our faith in Christ. We have to put our trust in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, you know, if you've been to the State Fair, you've, you've seen the tram, right? The thing where everybody rides. No, well, I'm sorry. I, I want the one with the, I, I gave them the wrong, wrong thing. Not the tram, the, the tramway. 
whatever, is that what you call the thing where the people are suspended? Skyway, Skyway, sorry, my bad. Doesn't matter, tramway, they're riding for free, right? You gotta get on the tramway, you gotta trust that it's good, you gotta, the Skyway, you gotta trust that you're not gonna fall out of the sky, you know, I mean, it's a cable, right? right? A cable suspended from there. And you're just riding along this thing, looking at people down there. You're not supposed to spit on them or throw gum on them or stuff. But you're riding up there suspended in air. You have to put your faith or trust in, you've never, did you inspect it before you got on it? No. Did you look at the cables? No. Did you check out the gearbox to see that it was not going to default on, your, on the way? No. Did you check the seat to see that it was firmly attached to the cable? No. To trust in Jesus is to simply acknowledge and accept that he died in our place. That's what we do. And those who are saved from sin, the text of Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says, we, the reason we have been redeemed, that's one of the reasons for our salvation is redeem us from the lawless deeds because our lawless deeds condemn us to an eternity apart from God. But it's also that we've been saved not from lawless deeds only, but we've been saved for good deeds. Read the end of verse 14. He says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We're his people. To do good deeds. Zealous to purify for good deeds. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved for these good works. But the good works are for God as God's possession, right? You can write this down, or I can look at it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says the same thing. I've, I've said it before, and you've heard it before. You know, we're as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. Zealous means eager. Now, I'm eager to go to an Iowa State football game. You know, I'm eager. I, I, I want to go watch, you know, top-ranked con- team in the country. I want to go see them, play ball, you know. But here, are we eager to do good? Are you and I eager to to care about other people and to do good things. Believers are bought with a price to glorify God in our bodies. Okay, not for us. You know, it's, it's for Him. The gift of salvation brings us into the family and is to compel us to serve the one who brought us into the family. The love of Christ controls us. Having considered this, that one died for all, therefore all died, that those who uh, died should no longer live for themselves, but, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. We're supposed to live out this new creation that we are in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, as new creatures in Christ. And what sort of good work should we do? I mean, what does it mean? We're supposed to do good works. What does that mean? Well, just a few. Proclaim the gospel as his possession. If you looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people of a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Why? That we might proclaim the excellencies of him who delivered us from darkness and into his glorious kingdom. That's a good work we're supposed to do. We're supposed to practice godliness, kindness, gentleness, patience, fruits of the Spirit. We're supposed to provide for and protect the vulnerable, the widows and the orphans. And strangers provide for needy believers. Matthew 25, people like to talk about that. Matthew, we're supposed to care for those outside the body of Christ, but we're also supposed to care for those in the body of Christ. And I'll challenge you, Matthew 25 is about those in the body of Christ. These brothers of mine. Whatever you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done to me. That's a body of Christ issue. So we're supposed to care for the, the, the food, the shelter, the clothing uh, in the body of Christ as well. Outside the body of Christ. Encouraging words. What about the welfare of community? I think about freedom for, freedom for youth. You know, Bob's working at Freedom for Youth. That's a great ministry. All, lots of other ministries we can do. What about the care for a little free food pantry? That's caring for people's needs in the community. What about helping well out with uh, the ESL and Embark and the refugee community? A lot of opportunities that we can engage in to help in the community. And it's interesting because the Bible says our good deeds within the body of Christ and our good deeds outside of the body of Christ are a platform for sharing the gospel. Our light should shine before men that they might see our good works and do what? Give God the glory. Give God the glory. Give God the glory. 
That's what God's called us to do. So that's the challenge for us, I think, as a church body, is that to ask the Lord of the harvest to give us compassion for the lost. Ask the Lord of the harvest to motivate us to do good deeds for his glory and the gain of his kingdom. And, you know, as, as we close the service, it's, it's interesting uh, that we should ask the Lord to enlarge our heart, to show compassion and energy to, to, to do good works. But as the Lord died on the cross, he demonstrated his compassion in a, in a profound way. And as we take the symbols of the bread and the cup, we remember his sacrifice and realize that it's his grace that made it possible for us to enter the kingdom of God. And it's only his grace that's going to bring others into the kingdom of God. And so we pray that God would use us as instruments of that grace to reach out to a lost and dying world and to see that doing good is the natural fruit of our placing our faith in Christ. So as the praise team comes and they, they play the next song, uh, what I'd invite you to do is just search your heart and say, Lord, will you give me a heart of compassion? And Lord, will you give me grace and wisdom to know what good works you want me to be about? And then as you feel led to take the bread and the cup in remembrance of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.